Although we can't go back in time, we can reflect on our past experiences and learn from them. But wouldn't it be so awesome if we could? What would you tell yourself? This is Letters to My Younger Self. I'm Liz Gardner. Join me as we talk with individuals about their life stories and how they've learned and how we can become a little better from hearing their incredible stories. Dear Kelsey, I know you think that you can control your own path, but just trust that handing the reins over to your God who knows you best will strengthen and better you and lead you precisely where you need to be. Sincerely, your humbled and hopeful self. Today on the show, I have Kelsey Flores, and I'm so excited to have you here, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. Kelsey is one of the nicest people you will ever meet. Anytime she's around, she makes you feel like a million bucks. She just finished law school and is currently living in Washington, D.C. She just had her first baby in April, and he's darling. She also brought me my favorite food when I was in the hospital having my baby. She brought me Torchy's tacos, and it was amazing. She's just seriously amazing. She blesses everyone's lives that she's around, and I'm really excited for all of you to hear her story today. That's very kind of you, Miss Liz, but thank you. And and it would have been a crime to not bring Torchy's. I mean... If you haven't had Torchy's Tacos, you need to get yourself to one ASAP. Will you tell me a little bit about your family and what it was like growing up? Sure. So I am the youngest of four kids. I grew up in a really warm home. It was really welcoming. My parents are both big fans of hosting people. So I remember growing up, they just loved having people over. So they're both really engaging. They're really kind and service oriented. And my parents loved kind of building family traditions, having people over. And that kind of instilled in me a desire to take care of people, always provide food. I remember my mom taught me growing up one thing that she taught me among many was to never go to a party empty handed. And so she's like, even if you need to run to a store and grab a bag of chips, just never show up to a party empty handed. And sometimes you know, I would probably disappoint my mom by going to parties empty-handed, but that kind of paints the picture of just how they were always trying to take care of other people. Well, I don't think I've ever been to a party that you're at that you showed up empty-handed, that's for sure. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about your dad and how he got sick? Sure. When I was 19, um, I decided to serve a mission for my church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I was assigned to serve in Northern Italy. So this was an 18-month mission. So I was on the other side of the world. At the time, my parents were empty nesters. My dad was an international leadership and sales consultant. And so he always traveled abroad, you know, training the C-suite and exec and sales teams of a lot of big companies. And my mom would often travel internationally, internationally with him as well. So that was kind of how things were set up when I decided to leave on my mission. And a few months into my mission, I got a phone call from the president of the mission who told me that unexpectedly my dad had suffered several strokes just out of the blue and was in really critical condition and had complete organ failure and that I would need to talk to my family about steps forward. And I didn't really, obviously, I didn't expect that kind of news at all, but I didn't really know how to take it. Um, I was on the other side of the world. I was far away. My dad has been and will remain forever my biggest hero. Any kind of social bone in my body I got from my dad. And so 
the thought that the person, you know, one of the most precious people to me being in such critical condition, uh, it really rocked me. How did the stroke start and everything? You just said it kind of came out of the blue. Well, interestingly enough, the doctors were able to find this out several weeks after my dad first had the strokes and was in the ER. But I guess what happened is that my dad, a few months prior, had had a sinus infection, which weakened his immune system. And then while traveling abroad, I think while he was in Asia, he got E. coli from somewhere. They don't know where he contracted it, but he got E. coli, which sent infected blood to his heart. And so then he had sepsis and toxic blood all throughout his body, which went to his brain and caused the strokes and then injured and damaged most of his organs too. So a a real freak accident. Yeah. I've never heard of anything like that happening. Is that common? I mean, I don't know anybody else who's had E. coli and had it affect them. Like it happened to him. I mean, my dad was the kind of person who never really got sick, but yeah, it was just really unexpected. So how did that change your family dynamic? So your dad had the stroke. They called you. What were your thoughts when you first found out? The first thing that I thought was obviously a lot of fear, a lot of sadness. I had the belief that going on a mission, my family would only be bettered and and taken care of. And in a lot of ways, they were. I just didn't think that anything like this could have happened. I was really afraid and scared and didn't really know what it would be like moving forward. A complete miracle, my dad lived and still lives today. He was in the ICU for four months. And because my dad's health was that up and down that I needed daily updates. And so from 5.15 to 5.45 at night, I would go to an internet point and see pictures and hear, you know, dad coded today, which means that his heart flatlined or dad got his tracheotomy in today, or dad got his heart surgery today, or a bunch of things. And I was there, you know, kind of viewing it all for 30 minutes. And then I would log log off and hit the road again, trying to teach people about the gospel of Christ. And um, it was tough. I was so lonely. And I remember hoping that I would see a lot of success in my mission at that area, because I made the decision to kind of put my all into missionary work because I figured that there's very little that I could do to help my dad physically, but whatever kind of blessings I could qualify for, I was going to do my best to receive those for my family. And so every day I would pray, God, like, please don't save any last blessings for me. Just please send them home. And I was really lonely and I didn't see a lot of success during that time. And I I hoped that I would at least, you know, get the the kind of confirmation that what I was doing was right, that it was being helpful. You know, maybe I can bring some soul to Jesus Christ, you know, while I'm out here instead of being home with my family. And it was actually just really tough. In turn, what happened though, was it brought me in nearness to the Savior, unlike anything else I've ever had or experienced, just because I was so alone. It was winter time. You know, I was up near the Alps and I didn't see a lot of success. And I was outside every day just trying to hit the ground running. I just got tired and kind of discouraged, but it kind of gave me this resolve to try and handle things more humbly and just acknowledge God's hand in it. And the more that I was able to kind of give up control and give up my own will, the sweeter that time became for me to the point that now, you know, that area in Italy is so special and sacred to me just because I drew really close to divinity um, as I was alone. And I know that was a long-winded answer for how it changed the 
the dynamics of our family. But when I got home, so that happened towards the beginning of my mission, I still had almost a year left. And so by the time that I got home, my dad, again, a complete miracle was able to come home. Um, But the dad that I came home to is very different than the father that I left. When I left, my dad, you know, was a heavy guy. He was, everyone called him Papa Bear, my maiden name's Bear. And so he was just this big guy. He was 6'2", always gave the best big bear hugs and was really, really dynamic. And the person I came home to was pretty different. My dad had lost 120 pounds because the strokes affected his ability to swallow. And since that day, my dad hasn't been able to swallow anything. He's still fed by a tube and obviously lost a lot of weight. He shrunk because I guess if you're like his, he's shorter. I guess if you're in a hotel bed or a hotel, a hospital bed for long enough, um, you lose a lot of inches. So my dad's now about five, nine and he used to be six, two. And he's just obviously really, really weak. The strokes affected his motor skills. And so our family dynamics now are pretty different. My dad hasn't been able to work since, and this happened in 2013. And, you know, even things that I kind of took for granted, like how many family events involve food or surround food. And now, you know, my dad is unable to swallow. And so he's just fed by a tube. We can't really go out anymore. No more family trips just because my dad's so weak and so susceptible to getting sick that the time that we spend together as a family is primarily just, you know, in our living room it kind of gave us a greater resolve as a family to just treasure and cherish the time that we have together. As a family, we became a lot more open and vulnerable. And it's interesting because the experience that I had in Italy alone, right, I was experiencing it by myself, um, is pretty different than the experience of my siblings and my mom, who were there, boots on the ground, you know, experienced everything firsthand. But collectively, all of us became a lot more vulnerable. Um, which is honestly probably a really healthy thing for us. And my dad, although physically different, mentally different too, however, he still has the same kind and loving heart that he always had. He's just a gentler, simpler version of himself, which has been a real delight to acquaint myself with him as well. So you talk about how he's changed mentally. Can you elaborate on that? He's just a lot simpler of of a person. The strokes affected his short-term memory. And so he really just doesn't have a great short-term memory whatsoever. His long-term memory is incredible. I mean, you turn a song on the radio from the 1970s, my dad can tell you what year, what artist, what skate they would do at the skating rink to that song. Like he's got an incredible long-term memory. Short-term memory um, isn't really there at all. He knows who we are and he can speak some. Um, He's just... He's pretty limited and he gets um, really, really tired. One thing that's kind of interesting to note, so the dad that I left before my mission, you know, traveled abroad, was really dynamic. You know, he was a vocational speaker. And the dad that I came home to kind of struggles mentally and physically. And the thing that has helped him to recover, what they gave him after the hospital were a lot of Legos because that really helps your you know, dexterity and hand-eye coordination. And to this day, my dad spends his days building Legos. And so his office, which, you know, used to host accolades and conference calls with important people, now is his Lego room. And he just has shelves of Legos that he's built. And so time that I get to spend with him, you know, we'll sit and do Legos together. Hayden would love to come over to your house then. He needs to. It's it's a really neat place. It's obviously kind of tough to be in there, you know, and my dad is 
so sweet and so humble. And Liz, honestly, he has never once questioned what's happened or complained, which is incredible because my dad is just cognizant enough to know how limited he is. So that sometimes when we're doing Legos together, he'll make the comment and just say, can you believe that, you know, I'm your dad and this is all that I can do. I know it's kind of devastating and it's made me, you know, never look at Legos the same way just because they're just a sweet, simple reminder of humility and trusting in God's will. And I'm so grateful that, you know, I, I, I believe that, you know, he'll be healed one day and that the dad that I know will again, grace our family, but it's certainly softened me and made me a lot more vulnerable. Wow. That really is an incredible story. And I feel like you have such good perspective and I think it would be easy to be bitter about what happened. I feel like you're just really graceful and always look for the positive. Any amount of hope or humility or positivity that I've kind of gleaned from this has just been an example of my mom and my dad. My mom is now my dad's full-time caretaker And she is a woman of grace. She is a woman of faith. She never once has complained either. And obviously her life is, I mean, dramatically different. My mom never liked driving. I mean, it's a little thing, but because of what happened to my dad, my dad, his license was revoked almost immediately. And so my mom is one who has to drive them around. And that's a microcosm for how their relationship has changed. But, you know, she's never complained, even though their lives are really different. She just loves and dotes on my dad. And and I believe it when she says that she's never loved him more than she does now. So any amount of kind of positivity that I have towards this experience has been by watching the example of my incredible parents and my siblings. Her life has completely changed as well. She's his full-time caretaker and their lives are a lot simpler now. And a lot of the things that she used to be able to do, she can't. And yet, you know, she just loves him and dotes on my dad. And you know, I know I'm better to have learned a lot about, you know, marriage and love your choice and choose your love because of my mom. So if you could go back in time to when you first found out that your dad was sick and you were devastated and not sure if he was going to live, what would you tell yourself? I think two things. The first one is to open your heart and allow yourself to grieve. I was told by someone on my mission that if I was discouraged at all about what happened to my dad, it was because I didn't have enough trust in God or his plan. And so I bottled up what I felt for a long time because I just wanted to be as faithful and, you know, trusting in God as possible. Um, But it made it so that way when I got home from my mission, I was kind of hardened. I had built this protective wall around my heart and my feelings. And I wish that I could have just told myself to that it's okay to grieve and to mourn and to be vulnerable and to... And the second thing that I would tell myself is to be patient with yourself and give yourself grace as you try and figure out this new normal and get used to it. It can take a long time and that's okay. Yeah, I think that's really wise. If you could go and talk to yourself before your dad got sick, what would you tell yourself? Oh, man. I think that I would say just enjoy and treasure the little things, his big bear hugs, how he interacts with other people, his laugh, his jokes. I think I would also tell myself to be softer on my mom. I remember being a teenager that sometimes, you know, I just was kind of snotty to my mom. Aren't we all? Man, I don't know what I was thinking. I think I would tell myself to be softer on my mom because she's so much stronger I mean, just more than I could have ever imagined. And I have always 
idolized and looked up to my mom, but I think that I would just told myself to, you know, be a student and learn from your mom without having to be forced to as well. I like that. Yeah. I don't know what it is about the teenage years, but it seems like we think we have it all figured out. And then as an adult, I'm like, I really don't know anything these days. I'm just still learning. But I think when I was a teenager, I thought I had everything all figured out. I knew how to be a good parent. I knew what I was not going to do. And it's just funny how things change, right? Yep. Every day. Can you tell me, when did you first decide you wanted to go to law school? I always knew that I cared a lot about searching for truth. And I cared a lot about liberty and individual liberty. And I had no idea how to articulate that at the time. But there were these important truths about what man is and what man deserves and all these kinds of things that I believed in my heart, but I had no idea how to articulate them. And so I decided to study broadcast journalism because I liked the idea of being able to share what I thought that I knew with others and kind of searching for this truth. And I kind of got disenchanted with the media. um, And so I decided to turn to law. I didn't have any lawyers in my family or close friends or parents or anything. And so I didn't really know what I was doing, but I wanted to be able to articulate the innermost desires and truths that I held dear, but in a matter of reason and law. And so that was the reason I went to law school. And a lot of people tell you now, if you're considering go to law school, go if you want to be a lawyer, but make sure you want to know that ahead of time. I don't think I knew that ahead of time. Tell us a little bit about your law school experience. I first met you when you had started your first year of law school, and it was no walk in the park. Oh, man, Liz, honestly, God bless y'all that saw me (laughs) during those, you know, I feel like my teenage years, my law school years, you know, kind of similar in that I just had no idea really what I was doing. I just kind of struggled. And honestly, it was it was hard. And I I think that I anticipated that it would have been easier for me, not because I thought law school would be easy, but just because I felt like I was a pretty good student, that I would be okay. And I really struggled. Honestly, I couldn't really find my place. We had just moved to Texas and I'd never been to Texas before. My husband took a job in Dallas. Um, He was actually colleagues with Nate, your husband. And I just kind of decided to pick my law school accordingly. And I didn't know anybody there. And I also didn't have any background into anything about law. Like there are so many embarrassing stories of things that I would Google in class because I didn't know what anyone was talking about. And classmates behind me would laugh and ask me, you really don't know what that means? And I really didn't. And so I just, I think I underestimated like what would be required of me. And I was the only member of my church at the school and new to Texas. And I remember kind of being, a well, not kind of, I was approached by several people just the first week of school. You know, they heard me mention that I went to BYU. And so they felt it upon themselves to come up to me after class and say, oh, so you're Mormon. And I said, yeah, you know, how did you figure that out? And they said, oh, you went to BYU. And then two different people the first week of law school said, since we're in law school, it's going to be okay to kind of like talk about this stuff because I'm guessing you like to argue because you came to law school. So let's get into, you know, why your religion's wrong and tell me why it's right. And I just remember thinking, you know, I'm not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) Like it was wild. And I... I kind of floundered initially just because 
everybody there, I mean, you hear that everybody going to law school is this kind of type A person who knows what they want. I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew that I was kind of lost. And I finally found myself when once we started studying constitutional law, and I didn't know that that would that would have been it. But that's kind of when I realized, oh, this is the stuff that I care about. This is kind of, you know, singing to my soul a little bit. But it wasn't until then that I kind of felt like it was the right decision. So I questioned it for a long time. You questioned whether you should be in law school? Yeah, man, every day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you stuck it out. You're amazing. I know that towards the end of law school, some of the jobs that you were originally wanting didn't work out. If you could go back to that time, what would you tell yourself when you were discouraged? I think that I would tell myself that... What you feel called to do is something that you can lean into and trust and have faith in. Now I can kind of look back at it and understand God's hand in it. But at the time, door after door was being closed. And I wrote on this legal pad all the different firms that I was interviewing with. So I'd applied to probably well over 100 places. I had interviewed with 30 law firms. And I didn't get one offer. One. And these are like final round interview law firms. And I remember after law firm number six or seven being like, what is going on? Like, I I mean, I had six chances of me staying up all night trying to draft the perfect cover letter. And then the great news that I get an interview and I'm preparing for an interview, trying to get to know everybody who's going to be at the interview. And then I go to the interview and it goes well. And so I send a little thank you email and then I go to a final round interview and I think it goes well and I don't get the job. And by firm number six or seven, I was really, you know, trying to wonder what I did wrong. You know, I I was like, I must be really saying something wrong. And that happened. I mean, can you believe it? 24 more times. (laughs) I mean, now I can kind of laugh at it because I'm sure that like people, you know, I just hope that I can be this poster child for anybody who feels like, you know, stuff isn't working out. They're like, oh, I didn't get the role in the school play or, oh, I can't get this job. They're going to be like, oh, have you talked to Mrs. Flores? I think she had like 30 or something. And, you know, hopefully I can like comfort people, but it was a lot. And I was confused because I felt really driven to keep going. And that was hard. I was really discouraged. You know, I think after like probably 10, I was questioning, like, should I just kind of cut my losses? Like, what do I need to change? And instead, I just felt compelled to keep going. And that was hard because 10 turned to 20 and 20 turned to 30. And, you know, I got really scared because... You know, several of the interviews, I was asked things that legally I should not have been asked about my plans to start a family, which honestly is buck wild because that's really illegal. And so they asked you if you wanted to have kids or what? You know, there were several different firms. Some of them asked me, asked me first what my husband did, which is odd because I'm supposed to ask you about your spouses. And I kept trying to like direct the attention back to how I thought that I could really be an asset to the firm and why I wanted to work there. And he wanted to know how much my husband made. And then if we had any plans to have children and classmates would tell people at law firms that I would quote, tap into their benefits in no time. And so I really feel like I was just work harder to kind of fight this um, kind of expectation or reputation that because I went to BYU, I guess the math that people were putting together is she went to BYU She has a ring on her finger, so she's a Mormon married woman. You know, it's only a matter of time, I guess, until she starts having kids. And that didn't happen in all the interviews. I really believe a lot of them I probably just wasn't competitive enough for. 
But there were certainly a number where that came up. And I remember being afraid because nothing was working and I was discouraged. And if I could go back in time, I would tell myself there, just chart your own course, sister. Like, it's okay. It's not going to look the same for you as it does for other people. My law school really promoted or emphasized going after certain jobs. And I was in you know, this group of people where everyone around me was getting these really big, sexy jobs. And, you know, I was just honestly really embarrassed because I couldn't and everybody knew. And I was really, really humbled and just kind of had to keep checking in to make sure that, you know, I was doing what I felt like I needed to do. And what I felt like I needed to do was keep applying to jobs and keep trying to find something, even though I didn't really, I wasn't even really that interested in these jobs. I just felt like it was what I needed to do because it was what I was told I needed to do. And it wasn't until the 31st interview that I finally got a job. So during that time, what do you feel like you learned from the discouragement and the rejection? I think I gained a lot of empathy for people who likewise, you know, receive rejection or failure. I believed that before all this happened, I had the understanding or what belief that you can try really hard and work really hard and do your best and that will result in what you want it to and that doesn't always happen um if you work really hard you're going to be bettered for it but sometimes you can work really hard and still not get the job and I think that I gained a lot of empathy for people who you know struggled trying to find things I learned a lot about tenacity. You know, I, I gained a lot of grit because it takes a lot of perseverance to draft more cover letters and prepare. And I learned to try and keep going, even though I kind of struggled with self-confidence, which is something that I hadn't really struggled with before. Um, I mean, I'd always had moments of self-doubt, but not like I had at this moment. And so being able to keep pushing, even though I really questioned myself, um, was something that I had to develop kind of out of necessity. You're amazing to keep doing that. I think I probably would have applied for maybe two jobs and then I'd be done. But so I'm glad that you <laughs> kept going. Tell us about what you're doing right now. What was the job 31? Oh, that's so awesome, Liz, honestly. And it's so much better than what I thought that I could qualify for or what I was going for. And it kind of just happened out of the blue so I had interned with this nonprofit law firm that like strictly defends religious liberty for Americans. That's all that it does. And I'd interned with them during law school. And I remember during that internship thinking, this is so fun. This is, you know, meaningful. It's what I want to do forever. But I'd heard that you can't really get a job like that right out of law school. So that's why I just started to go you know, the route of recruiting for a bunch of other firms that did more traditional commercial litigation stuff. You know, there's this principle that I believe in, which is sometimes we are blessed through our efforts and sometimes we are blessed because of our efforts. You know, sometimes you work and recruit and do all that you can and through that effort you get a job and other times you work and recruit and do all that you can and then it's like, you know, manna from heaven you know, God gives you this opportunity that wasn't through your own efforts, but because of them. And that's what happened. The law firm that I had interned with out of the blue decided that they wanted to open a Washington, D.C. office, which is where I wanted to be anyway. But it's so hard to get a job in D.C. 
doing constitutional law, especially. And they said, you know, we've opened this office in D.C. for a new attorney and we'd like you to interview. And at this point, I was pregnant and, you know, really nervous about getting a job anyway, because I felt like people were concerned about me being pregnant long before I ever was. And now that I actually was pregnant, I was, you know, nervous about being able to get a job. But the interview went well. And we moved ourselves to DC. And I started a couple months ago, and I'm having the time of my life. That's so awesome. Yeah, you can't really hide the fact that you're pregnant when you're showing, right? You're like, no. What are your plans for children? You're like, oh, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Oh, man. Well, I mean, interestingly enough, I hid my pregnancy at law school until I was 24 weeks along. Fortunately, it was wintertime. So like big baggy sweaters and stuff were in. But when I had to wear a suit, it was a little harder. You know, I had to get, you know, a new size and stuff. But yeah, it was it was hard. So you had your little boy bear, you had him in April. And when did you graduate? In May. So how did that go transitioning to be a mom and finishing up law school? You know, um, I, in the moment, I think I was like, my mind was so foggy that I didn't really realize what was going on. Um, we had help, thank goodness. I mean, our friends and our family were so helpful. My best friend from home flew out to Dallas and stayed with us for 17 days. That's so nice. I know. She was so nice. And so, it, you know, it was interesting because I had finals still to take care of and a lot of papers. And so my, my best friend, Allie and Richard would be out with Bear in the family room. And I was bedridden for the first several weeks because I had an unplanned C-section. So I was on the bed. And then when it was time to feed Bear, they would bring Bear into me and then, you know, take Bear back. And I would keep working on papers. And uh, it was it was foggy. It was It was a hard time. I can't imagine trying to write a paper. I feel like after I have babies, my brain just doesn't even function. <laughs> You know, I have no idea the quality of those papers. I think I'm too afraid to go back and look at them, but they were turned in. So that's what mattered. And you graduated and you passed the bar. That's so amazing. Shortly after you had Bear, there was a complication in Richard's family with some health issues. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I had just graduated from law school. So Bear was about six weeks old and it was time to study for the bar exam. And that was the part that I was most worried about because... My classes and professors were pretty accommodating, but the bar exam isn't very accommodating. You need to put in a lot of time. And I knew that I needed to do like 10 to 12 hours a day. And so I didn't know what that was going to look like with a newborn. Richard had to go back to work. Um, And so we tried for probably a week or two, and it wasn't really working. And um, Bear had some health complications at the beginning, so I kind of got a late start. And then we got a phone call that Richard's mom, her health was really, really poor. And it was a family emergency and that we needed to come to Utah. And so we packed our bags for what we thought would be, you know, max four or five days and ended up staying an entire month. And we were in Utah kind of unexpectedly. So we just left everything in Dallas, picked up our little family. And I think that was even harder than right after I had the baby, just because I was so concerned about my mother-in-law. Richard was obviously really concerned too. You know, was visiting his mom at the hospital. She had had complete kidney failure and, you know, needed to start dialysis and hadn't yet. And so her body was 
um, just, I mean, she was really, really, really ill. And so Richard was always visiting her at the hospital while she was in critical condition and also trying to visit, you know, outpatient facilities or assisted living facilities. And we're young and his mom's young, but we were trying to figure out, you know, the best steps moving forward where his mom would need to be. And his mom's unmarried. And so this was kind of a decision that Richard and his sister were trying to make. And so he, Richard was gone a lot. And I had friends and my mom, you know, help watch Bear. And I remember I had a study in the basement and I just ached to, you know, help, whether that was, you know, I heard my baby crying upstairs and I knew that I could help, um, but I needed to focus or I knew that Richard was struggling so much. Um, but he was out of the house, you know, trying to tour all these assisted living facilities. And, you know, I wanted to be there with him on these tours. And I felt really strongly and called that I needed to just keep studying. And that was tough because, you know, I just I wanted to, you know, be with my family. But I, the spirit, I believe, really kept telling me that I needed to keep studying. And so I was in this basement alone for hours and hours and hours each day. And I would, you know, keep going upstairs to pump or to feed bear and then would have to go back to this lonely little basement where I was trying to learn stuff and pay attention. You know, I was just really distracted and a miracle only by Heavenly Father, but his mom, you know, was able to be okay. And now she's in an outpatient facility, but that was, that was a wild time. Wow. I mean, you're still in your twenties, right? Yeah. Just turned 26. You just turned 26. So most people don't really have to deal with finding a, an assisted living center for their parents until their 40s, 50s. It just seems like you guys have had to deal with so many things at such a young age. I'm sure a lot of people have to, you know, go through things young that they didn't expect. And so I don't think that, you know, we're necessarily rare in that suffering. I just think that we weren't I mean, we had no idea what we were doing and, and we still don't, you know, we're trying to research all these things. Bless Richard's heartless. He's so incredible. He had to become, you know, an expert in Medicaid and disability insurance and all these kinds of insurance. You know, meanwhile, he's trying to like strengthen his wife is, you know, probably going mentally unwell, you know, and take care of a newborn baby and take care of his mom. And, you know, he just had like Herculean strength. And I mean, it was it was incredible seeing him handle it all. Well, I feel like one of those things happening, having a baby just by itself is a huge life change. Having a sick parent, that by itself is a huge life change. Graduating law school and and studying for the bar, but you add all those things together, plus you're still recovering and you have all these hormones and all these things going on. I just can't even imagine what you had to go through. You're just incredible that you were able to do that. We had a lot of help. Honestly, so many people rallied around us and made it possible. And I mean, it it's like seriously attributed to them and God. That's why I love you because you are always so humble, but you really are incredible for being able to do that. So what do you feel like you learned from this experience? One thing is that our quiet, earnest efforts don't go unnoticed by God. You know, I kind of had a, a flashback to when I was in Italy, really lonely in the Alps during wintertime to when I was, you know, in the basement alone, knowing Richard was struggling, you know, hearing my baby cry, but really feeling like I just needed to keep studying. And I'm sure that, I mean, that was just my experience. I'm sure people will listen to this and think like, regardless, you should have gone, you know, 
taking care of her family and I did what I could, but I, I really felt like I, you know, that, that God was taking care of them. And at the time I needed to focus on something else. And I questioned a lot and had a lot of, um, you know, my, my heart was just heavy. And, you know, I think back on that time and it's likewise, you know, sacred, lonely time. And I just think that I learned that, you know, the, those quiet prayers that I had with God, the, the really small efforts. I mean, we, we read in the Bible that, you know, there was that woman who gave her, her might, you know, the widow's might, you know, and I feel like the, the most that I was able to study or offer anybody this summer, this past summer was just like a little widow's might, but like that little effort that I made didn't go unnoticed by God. Well, you're amazing. I have so much respect for you that you were able to do that and, and pass the bar and everything. How has your transition back to work been? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm sure anybody listening to this has been like, this chick is just like sad and discouraged all the time. <laughs> Not at all. Say, I love, love being here. I haven't felt settled. I mean, probably since undergrad. And I, I know that I'm in the right place. I love what I'm doing. I'm having a blast. I think that I didn't allow myself to have any of those postpartum feelings until finally I could breathe. And that wasn't until we moved out to DC and got settled. And so I feel like now is when I'm, I'm kind of going through that, you know, anxious moments and depressed moments, just because I'm, you know, I finally like allowed myself to feel a little bit, um, you know, and then I started working full time right away. And so learning to juggle being, you know, full time employee, when I really just want to give it my all and, you know, put the time in, but you know, I'm also learning to hand off my baby every day, all day long. What do people think about you being a brand new lawyer and having a baby? You know, it's interesting because I feel like I can't, I'm, I'm having a hard time, you know, kind of finding the community a little bit because a lot of the family that I have and friends that I have um, are parents or moms that, you know, stay home with their babies and, a lot of the friends that I have that work that are lawyers um, that are, you know, starting their careers don't have any kids. You know, I'd never, ever seen a pregnant person at law school before. And so I, you know, I'm kind of trying to find my place. And yet I know that it's probably really unpopular to start your legal career, you know, just having had a baby because the goal is that, you know, you're able to just crank, you know, for a while and obviously your ability to crank right you know, when you start a career with a baby is limited. And so I definitely think that it's unpopular, you know, really surprises people. Um, but uh, my law firm has been only supportive and kind and encouraging and wonderful. And so that's kind of what I'm sticking to is that you know, as long as, you know, I'm doing what I can in their eyes, um, and we're communicating that I'm doing the best for me too. So tell us, why are you so passionate about protecting religious beliefs of Americans? I think that from this freedom stems everything else. So if we don't have the right to believe in what we want to believe and exercise that belief, then it's only a matter of time until our other freedoms are taken away too. And what matters most to man typically are these really sincere questions. Who am I? Where do I come from? Um, where am I going? You know, what is my purpose? And that those questions are typically answered by theories of religion. And so if we can protect those sincere questions of Americans, then the rest of our freedoms will be protected too. Yeah. And I feel like you've had 
a unique experience at law school being persecuted for your religious beliefs. Yeah, I don't really think I anticipated that. I think some of it really was out of just curiosity. I think some of it was, but to go from BYU where, you know, almost everybody that I knew had the same beliefs, at least religious beliefs, to go to a place where I was really the only member in the whole school, I think was probably like a healthy change, but I don't think I anticipated having to you know, argue and defend my beliefs like that. Well, Kelsey, you're always so kind and genuine and always building people up. How are you able to do that when your life's so stressful and you have so many things to worry about? I don't know, really, Liz, if that's how I'd characterize it. Um, That's very kind of you to say. But honestly, it's probably a selfish reason in that, you know, when I'm struggling, I love to surround myself with good people. And I feel really fortunate to have so many incredible good people in my life that, you know, I I surround myself with them. And, you know, if I see goodness, I call like it is just just because, you know, I'm I'm strictly being honest. It's not that I'm trying to be nice. It's that I'm being honest, you know, and I just am honest about the goodness of the people that are around me just because, I mean, it helps me also remember that there really is a lot of great things going on. You know, there's still reality TV, even though, you know, life is crummy. I at least, I at least have like reality TV seasons to tune into. <laughs> I have friends that like reality TV. I have friends that, you know, support me and have seen me, you know, in my crummiest moments where I've been, you know, like the least positive. Um, I just feel really grateful. And so that's kind of being able to look outwards and realize, you know, the goodness of people really, really strengthened me when I was weak. Well, I appreciate all the times you've strengthened me. I've never had a conversation with you that you didn't build me up and make me feel amazing. You're always so kind, even if it has no merit. You are always so kind to say wonderful things. So how do you feel like your struggles, heartache, and trials have made you a better person? I think in a couple ways, I think the most obvious way is that they've made me a lot more empathetic. Um, I'm able to, and I really can't identify with a lot of people's struggles, but um, it's kind of helped me be, you know, a fellow sufferer in that, you know, I, I understand feelings of confusion and doubt and despair and heartache and discouragement. I also think it's really, really humbled me. I thought that I could put a lot of time and effort in and kind of control how things would go. And that really hasn't been the case. So I think I've been really humbled in just kind of being able to hand over my wants and desires to the God who knows and loves me. And that's really something that I've gained from this. I think that it's obviously strengthened my relationship with the savior um, when I had nothing else to lean on and I was so lonely and discouraged. Um, I'm forever grateful that, you know, it was just me and Christ, you know, what better company is there than somebody who knows exactly what you're going through. And sometimes in moments of comfort or um, when I'm feeling comfortable, I, I don't lean on Christ as much, unfortunately, just because I find myself, you know, not needing him as much. And that's really something that I'm trying to work on is building a consistent relationship with the Savior instead of like really needing him when I'm struggling. So that's something I'm working on. But then the last thing that I would say for which I'm really grateful for the struggles I've gone through is that it's made me a lot more resolute about who I am and who I am not. And it's kind of helped me realize here's what I have to offer And here's what I don't have to offer. I think that I used to try and 
not be somebody I wasn't, but, you know, try and try and offer more or offer different things. But instead, I'm just kind of a lot more resolute about who I am and what I can offer and being, you know, proud of that and just realizing that, you know, there's a lot of beauty in kind of this, you know, this person that I've been made to be, you know, after kind of having the heat on me for a while, I may be a little warped and I might look pretty different than I did before I went into this whole, you know, experience of the last 10 years. But um, I'm a lot more solid in that and proud of that too. Well, I really do think that the hard things that we go through make us who we are. And if our lives were just easy every day, then we would have no reason to grow or change or kind of push through the hard times. My last question for you is if you could go back in time to any stage of your life, what would it be and what advice would you give yourself? I think that I would just tell myself that it's easy to care a lot about what other people think of you. And instead, what matters most is how you view yourself and how God views you and worry about that. Lean into that. Um, That's enough. You know, you are enough. I think a lot of times I find myself trying to just be so much more than um, kind of what I'm supposed to be. And not that I'm saying that I shouldn't always try to be better. I just think that I wish that I could go back and tell myself, I think I would have saved a lot of worry if I was just like, look, things are going to look different for you. Your family dynamics are going to look different and that's okay. Your law school experience is going to look different and that's okay. Your path to being a mom is going to look different and that's okay. Your path being a mom and how you do it is going to look different from everybody and that's okay. And I think, I mean, it's something I need to remind myself every day is just, Like chart your own course, sister. It's going to be okay. However you're doing it is enough and right for you. And I love how you say do what's best for you. And it doesn't really matter what other people think about how you're being a mom or how you're doing things because everyone will have an opinion about how you should parent, what you should do, you know, and you can't live your life trying to impress everybody else. And you'll never be happy if you try to do that. Well, Kelsey, I just think you are so inspiring and so amazing. And actually, when you first told me the story about your dad, that's when I first had the idea. It was like a year and a half ago that I wanted to have some sort of platform for people to share their stories. And then about a month ago, I was thinking I never followed up on that. And so that's why I ended up starting the podcast. So I guess you're to thank for kind of helping me have that thought come into my mind and everything. And I just think you're incredible, all you've gone through and your positivity and just perseverance to keep trying when things were hard and things aren't all the way easy now, but that you're still just doing your best and being your amazing self.